Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I know it's been a long day, productive day, but long day. Um, so happy to have Rob Simonson joining us here. Um, <laughs> fresh from Venice and Toronto Film Festivals, where The Whale, your latest film that we know that you've scored, is wowing audiences, and there's already Oscar talk and all that stuff. Um, do we have a little clip we can play? Great. That's such a tease. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> um, do you remember where that is in the film at all? Nope. <laughs> and none of us have seen it that I know of just because it hasn't opened yet. It'll open on December 9th, you said. Mm. Um, so I don't know. That was just like a short little intro of a 10-minute clip, by the way. It does a lot more than that. But oh, Okay. <laughs> Um, the film, in case you aren't aware, is about, correct me if I'm wrong, um, a high school English teacher who is grossly obese and wants to make up with his son or reconnect with his son or? Uh, I think it's college. He's college. a college professor online. Mm -hmm. Um, and he is, yeah, he's, he's a 600 pound man and trying to reconnect with his daughter. Oh, daughter. I got everything. Yeah. Wrong. Okay, every, cool. Almost everything. <laughs> um, and it's Brendan Fraser who's playing yeah. uh, the main character, the whale, as it were. I'm assuming it's referring to his size. Nope. No. There's wow. a thread of Moby Dick I see. that kind of plays through the, the whole thing. Um, there's an essay about Moby Dick. And okay. it's, so it's more allegorical in that sense. What I'm hearing is rave reviews, standing ovations, lots of tears, all the stuff that um, points to the Academy. Um, so when did you get involved? How did you get involved? Um, I woke up on a Monday morning with a text from Jason Reitman, and it said, I just wrote a love letter about you to Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> and uh, I was like, did I read that right? And um, and then my agent called and and asked if uh, I was free to speak with Darren at eleven, and I was like, no. Of course, I said yes. <laughs> and uh, so we we spoke um, over Zoom, and he told me a little bit about the film, and we got to know each other a little bit, and 
he said, well, I'm going to send you the film and see what you think and let's talk after that. So I watched, he sent me the film and I watched it that night and there was no score and I was like just rendered a teary mess by the end. It's really a powerful film and Brendan Frazier is so brilliant in it. And um, so after I finished crying, I texted him and said, let's talk tomorrow. And so we, we talked in the morning and uh, he asked what I thought. And I told him some ideas that I had, some rough musical ideas that I had. And I think the vibe was good. And he said, all right, let's do it. And uh, we hung up the phone. And then like two minutes later, an offer came through. So it happened very fast. And it was incredible. I mean, Darren's one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. And um, I've always said that I'd love to work with the Aronofsky's of the world. So it was pretty miraculous when Aronofsky himself called. And and then we got to work. And I was in L.A. and, and he was in New York. So I would trek out there and had a little mobile rig and I set up in a side office at Protozoa and we'd watch the film down and talk and take notes and I'd mess around with things and then go back home. And so we did that for, for a while. I think round trip was probably about four months of working. I think it was late September that he called me actually. So maybe a little more. We recorded in February. So, yeah. And then did you have any familiarity with the stage play or anything like that? No, I had never seen it. And, you know, he sent me the film right away, so I didn't have time to read it or research it much, which I think was good because having the experience of it just as a film um, was good. But honestly, I'd, I'd love to see the play because it very much feels like a stage play. Um. But since then, I've spent some time with Sam Hunter, the, the writer. Uh, he was with us in Venice and Toronto and really lovely guy and got to hear a little bit more about his childhood and kind of the genesis of that project. So it would have been nice to have had that conversation with him before I started. I don't know if that would have wound me up in a different place, but um, everyone was, was really lovely on the film. It sounds like you wound up in the right place. (laughs) Um, So a few things about what you said. First, that the film was done by the time you came on. So that's already a little bit unusual. And also that there was no temp music whatsoever. And the other thing is that film, the music is really important to Aronofsky's films. Hugely important. It's always been a standout aspect of it. Um, So what was... No pressure. (laughs) <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, we heard a little bit, but what was your thought, initial thought, initial reaction musically when you saw that first, saw it for that first time? Uh, my first thought was, I can't fuck this up because <laughs> it's so good without music. Um, yeah, it's a very quiet film. It's a very contained film. It all takes place in his apartment and there's maybe, you know, a few exterior shots, but for the most part, it's all very contained and the characters kind of come in and out. So it does feel 
like a stage play in some regards and some of the performances kind of lean into that. Brendan's performance is very subtle and very reserved. Um, and to me, it was very much a redemption story and this kind of Herculean effort to ha- achieve a redemption as simultaneously you're, you're on death's doorstep. Um, so for me, it, it really was this kind of allegorical, um, larger than life, you know, material that we were dealing with. And, um, I had found years ago, a a guy in Belgium that makes these overtone flutes, which are, they're like, um, related to a fuyara. If anybody knows what a fuyara is, that guy, he can tell you about it afterwards. Uh, and I asked him to make the largest overtone flute that, well, before I contacted him, I, what he does is so special. And I thought, no, I'm not going to use this for a film. I'm going to use this for something for a personal project. And then when I watched the film, it was just a sound that came to me and kind of thinking about whales and there's a nautical vibe to the film in the production design and in the sound design. And you kind of feel like you're in the belly of a ship in the apartment at times. So that was, you know, kind of one pathway in and this overtone flute, it kind of sounds a little bit like a musical blowhole. Um, and it's this, it's like a flute and a didgeridoo had a baby and, uh, it's, the sound is amazing. So I contacted this guy and we had some conversations. Um, well, I'm skipping ahead. So that was one of my initial ideas was to use this overtone flute and, you know, that there was this kind of, the music I felt should kind of come from nothing and then kind of disappear. But for me, again, it was, I was really keyed into this, this redemption, which is, I think, a very eternal desire for, for humans. So I think what I was envisioning was kind of a grand sound, but something that had a lot of reverb. So, um, a smallish orchestra, but an orchestra at air studios because beautiful reverb tail and there's a kind of a pristine quality. Um, and so these are some of the kind of main ideas that I think I spoke with him about initially. And then the first thing that I did was contact the flute player and I said, I want you to build the biggest flute you've ever built. And so he built one that was 21 feet long and it comes in sections and it assembled. And then he went to a church and did a session and just played all of these beautiful phrases. And I got tons of material that was beautifully recorded. And, um, and then that was kind of the first thing that, that set me off. Also a, a pump organ. I used a, a pump organ that I have from the 1800s because there's a, a lot of uh, religious overtones in the film. He's in um, Idaho. And uh, yeah, there's, there's like door-to-door religion sales things. And this is a, also a big overtone. So there's kind of like a church quality to it. And it's, 
you know, I don't want to give it away, but the the kind of narrow um, frames of mind from churches is kind of one of the, it's rendered in a harmful way to Charlie, the main character. And so he's, he struggles with it. And so kind of pulling from that also is, is where I started. And so I had this old pump organ that I'm babysitting for a friend and it's a family heirloom of his. So I was, I went in and just played like really dark stuff, which ended up being too dark um, for the film, but used some low drones that I then like recorded and pitched down and wove that in with the overtone flute. Um, so yeah, pulling on things that have kind of a living organic flavor, but hopefully that sounds somewhat unique and blended that a lot in with the orchestra. So I wanted everything, as I said, to kind of appear and disappear and be very smooth and just kind of have this quality of being at sea or being underwater. Um, because I, the, the, there's the, some of the emotions in the film are very sharp, very hot and very sharp. Sadie Sink is so phenomenal and her performance is just like a white hot knife. And it's like, whoa. And, uh, and, I think to kind of soften this and and really imply that he is adrift and that this is a feeling that I think is very common for a lot of people, at least it is for me, feeling adrift kind of at sea, at the sea of our emotions, and that sometimes these waves can kind of come on and that this is something that he's dealt with. His coping strategy is is food. And that this is, you know, gotten to a point where it's, it's killing him, but that it's really about these rolling waves of emotion. So these are a lot of the concepts that I, I drew upon. And yeah, definitely uh, Darren's musical identities in his films have always been very strong. And I'm a fan of all of those scores that that he did with Clint and and have been such a big fan. So I knew that I was stepping into big shoes and that Darren has a flavor and a vibe to his films, but also that I wanted to, um, you know, bring, bring my own voice and stretch into a new direction. I think that's probably what he wanted to, which is why he came to somebody different. Um, I have to say, I can't wait to see the film. Mm. <laughs> um, completely switching gears. Let's talk about your orchestral arrangements for Stranger Things. Mm. So this, I'm sure you've all noticed, uh, is very prevalent now, is to create orchestral versions of popular songs, especially songs that are a little bit older, not necessarily current songs. And of course, Kate Bush is like probably 2022 is one of the biggest phenomenons. She's still on the top. 10 for a song that came out 20, 30, 40, almost 40 years ago. It's 30 something years ago. It's 1985. So 37 years ago. Um, and you did do an orchestral arrangement of that one as well as other ones specifically for Stranger Things upon request. Um, tell us about that, about how that all came about, how you translated those stuff into orchestral arrangements and you had those recorded at air as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I, I think the, the Duffers 
as as I've I've heard through the grapevine, have have been fans of mine for some time, and um, I think my music ends up in the temp for Stranger Things sometimes. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, they, they knew that they wanted a kind of grand orchestral thing and they saw the Adam project because Sean Levy directed the Adam project and Sean is the executive producer of Stranger Things. So he showed them the film and they freaked for the score and, um, you know, they're going for a lot of Amblin eighties vibes and Stranger Things and, we were definitely pulling from that a bit just tonally in the Adam project and obviously in Ghostbusters. So, uh, they were pretty excited to, to do something. So there were four moments. There was kind of the orchestral overlay to the Kate Bush song that's in the body of the show when she's running. And then at the end credits, which of course is Netflix. So hardly anybody ever (laughs) sees or hears, um, but I did a, a, a instrumental cover. Mm-hmm. And so there were those two moments. And then there was um, a big moment. And I want to give it away. I am sh- Most people have seen it. If you're fans of the show, everybody's seen it. It's okay. You can give it away. Okay. So when Eleven's father dies, there's a, a orchestral version of Eleven's theme. And then I did the, the fun finale of the season at the end. And... Um, you know, they were, we were all so excited to, to be working together. And of course these were like pretty big moments for a flagship show. So Netflix came in with like support and, and, um, and I said, you know, let's, we need orchestra and it's good. Let's do, you know, London is like my people. And we did it with the LCO. I did both of those projects with the LCO. Uh, the London Contemporary Orchestra, and um, for anybody not familiar, they're a fairly younger group in London, and they've really, they play together as a bit of a band, and they've formulated a lot of their own vocabulary that they're very familiar with. So uh, working with them is is kind of, it's very much like working with a group, and they're always trying to push the envelope and stretch things, and so uh, Hugh Brunt and Robert Ames, they're great guys and they're friends of mine. So I called up uh, Hugh and, and, and we did it. So, yeah. And, and unfortunately they're not released and I don't think they ever will be released. It's so sad, <laughs> but you know, these are just how some of these things go. But um, yeah, no one, no one knew my name was nowhere for a while when the show first came out, the the first half of, of season four. So, you know, Kate Bush was just like worldwide phenomenon. And, um, and I was like, yeah, cool. Neat. No, I was just <laughs> secretly in the back. Um, but it, it was super fun. And, and I know that, that Kate loved what I did and that was great. Cause I love that song and I'm a fan of hers and, and it's awesome for her that I, I don't think that she broke in America anything like what she now broke. And the fact that an artist that has been around for so long can have a resurgence like that is really cool. And it's one of the cool things of the internet, to be honest, is that like when something can go viral, it can be so, it can be so vogue. And, um, you know, now on my Instagram feed, it's every other video is that song. It's like, man, good, good for her. So yeah, it was really fun. 
think a lot of the hits from my teenage years are now hits for teenagers because of these orchestral things, because of TV shows. And I was like, that's great. That's great music. Yeah. Um, so let me see. Let me check time really quickly. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's let's open it. I was going to ask you something else, but I think I should give the audience a chance to ask you questions since this is such a unique opportunity. Go ahead. Hi. Um Thinking about the score for Ghostbusters 2, um, which, uh, I don't know, I mean, just as a film composer, first of all, it was great, it was awesome. Oh, thanks. Um, thinking about, like, following Elmer Bernstein, was that weird? Were you trying to, like, adopt some of his mannerisms? And I, I heard you using themes, and, uh, or was it cool, or what, what was that experience like? Yeah, Jason... Um, <clears throat> Jason and I sat down when he knew that he was going to do this and he said, I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse. He said, I'm telling every department, this is not about you. This is about carrying on legacy. Um, so it was very clear from the beginning that we were custodians of what had come before and that for him, musically, he, it was, the music was very important to let the audience know you're in respectful hands of the franchise. And, but the film, you know, when I read the script, it's like, it's doing all sorts of things that the original film didn't do. So we talked about doing Ghostbusters material, doing Bernstein's score in the style of mid eighties action adventure films. So it should have like an Amblin spirit. It should feel like E.T. and Back to the Future and these kinds of films. And um, so I, I lived with that score. I studied all those scores and it was great. The pandemic hit and I was like, oh man, I have so much more time. This is great. Um, because to, to go deeper into all of the material and figure out try to understand Elmer's writings and not just on Ghostbusters, but his kind of proclivities as a composer in general and that era of his writing. Um, and getting to know a little bit of, of, you know, his, his kind of typical ways that he approaches things. So it was definitely that, but then also trying to blend the spirit of, you know, much more articulate orchestral writing. I find Elmer's work to be a bit, with all due respect, blocky, um, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons that it's so great in Ghostbusters. It's just like these apocalyptic blocks of chords. Um, whereas, you know, Back to the Future and E.T., it's, it's much the minutia of those scores. They're so detailed. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of fast moving stuff, even though you might not be hearing it. There's a lot of fast and quiet stuff. So it was a puzzle, you know, and then of course, like I have my own proclivities as a composer. So finding some, some of my own responses throughout all of these lenses. But I mean, it was just this kind of spectral experience that was frankly wonderful. It was really cool. And it was like going back to school and it was also just such a great opportunity to kind of weave all of these things together that, that I've, I grew up with and I loved so legitimately. So it was special. It was really special. When a new director comes up to you, what are you? Uh, what are your expectations, and what advice would you give that director? And the second part would be: Would you prefer that director to have some kind of musical background or not, and why? 
I try to have no expectations. Um, I think the biggest hurdle to overcome with a, a director, especially a new one, a new relationship, is uh, you haven't really, you don't know how effective your communication is with each other. And that's something that you will learn as you might go down a path that you think is what they want and you realize that it's not. Um, because this is a limitation of language in general. It's just very much, it's our biases. We're always filtering things through our understanding and they're saying it from their understanding. So it, it can take a lot of time and it can take a lot of a process to really understand what they're saying. And that's the first step is to understand what they're saying. And then the next step is to have a vision for how to do it in an artful way, hopefully that that is satisfying, that speaks to you. I don't come with any um, suggestions for directors. You know, I, I, I look at part of my job as a problem solver and part of the problem that I'm trying to solve is understanding what they're trying to communicate, not just verbally, but with their film. And they might not even understand any of that, but the, the onus is on, is on me as a composer. So the best thing is when you're really speaking the same language and you, you have that understanding. And if not, um, you know, you have to play psychologist a little bit and stretch your own mind out and um, challenge your own biases of, of your own understanding. And that to me is part of what makes film scoring so fun is that every time I think I know, I'm shown that I, I don't. So it's always, I'm, I'm always having to flex myself creatively and keep my fitness up and be willing to throw out my, you know, most loved ideas in service of something else. And I always think, how can it be better? How can it be better? I hope that's helpful. I have no idea if I answered your question. <laughs> It doesn't really matter, to be honest. You know, I, I think that it can be helpful. I remember I was sitting with Ivan, a nice little anecdotal story for the Ghostbusters fans. Um, and uh, a cue was going by and Ivan was like, how about a Gran Casa hit on that uh, cut there? You know, just a little piano, Gran Casa hit. I was like, what? I was like, who are you? And uh, he later told me that he actually started school as a composition student and he wanted to be a composer. He thought he would be a composer and then he switched to film. Um, so he was dangerous in that way. But I, I never disagreed with any of Ivan's notes. I got, I got along with him really well and, and I did a film that he produced. And I remember when I started, people were like, Ivan's really hard on music. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but I'm scared. But then I learned there's really nothing to be scared of. You know, I think it comes back to, to the communication. And I don't know if a director like has something up their rear end about a specific instrument or they want to show off their acumen musically, that's fine. It's their big moment. I'm not going to take that away from them. But to me, it's just about, you know, how do I take their desire and, and, and weave it into something artful and tasteful? Uh, thanks, Rai. Really, I think the music you've been doing each year just gets successively more and more beautiful. It's really uh, gorgeous. Mm, thank you. And 
Uh, one particular uh, project you did on, on the Atom project, there's a particular cue you scored, which I think there's even a video of you playing on the piano, which I, I thought was just one of a very emotional um, moment in that film, which I wasn't expecting because it's uh, Ryan Reynolds, you know, expected to be all goofy comedy, but it was a very touching moment. I, I want to know, how did you go about creating that cue? It really starts somewhere and it just has this tremendous emotional arc. What was your process in that? I had tried all sorts of less traditional ideas when I started working on that film and, and Sean hired me before he started shooting. So we had a fair bit of time and we talked about, he was like, I don't think it's going to be orchestra. He's like, I'm thinking it's electronic and, you know, can be kind of like different and weird and futuristic. And I was like, great. So a lot of the things that I was doing were less straightforward and he liked it, but he didn't love it. And then I, you know, similarly to what I was just talking about with the communication, you know, it wasn't just a communication deficit. It was also the fact that I think that Sean didn't totally know what the film needed. And um, I think as they started kind of temping the film, because, you know, they everything happens so fast. Like once they start shooting, they're sending the footage that day to the edit. The editor is cutting it together and putting in temp, whether it's your temp, original temp that you've made for the film, or somebody else's temp. So you can get behind the ball really quickly these days. Um, so this started happening and I was hearing the things that they were putting in and I was like, mm, it's pretty traditional. It's not So we, you know, and Sean and I both talked about it. It's like there was an evolution of, of what we thought we were going to be doing. And I think when I finally understood what he wanted and I think I understood what the film was, which is, it's a it's a story. It's a it's about healing the relationship between child and parents. And once I kind of realized that, that was what I was scoring. And the first part of that piece was like one stab at a theme, and I played this for him. I sent it to him, and he freaked out about it. He loved it. And then we were on a Zoom. The whole film was scored over Zoom, by the way. I didn't actually see him in person until the scoring stage. Um, and I play, you know, he's like, play it for me again. And I, and I played it. And then I was just like letting my hands fall on the keyboard. And he was like, yes. And I played another chord. He's like, yes. And then, and it, you know, and I was like, it, it was funny because I was playing one of the most often used chord progressions of all time. A chord progression that I was like, I will never use that in a score. And I was like, this what you want? And he was like, yes! And then this chord, yes! And he was just so over the moon. And you know, I mean, I'm, there's a, you can always capture what you last played on Logic. So he was like, did you record that? I was like, yes, and I did the capture thing. And I was like, I've just doomed myself. <laughs> Um, but you know, I leaned into it and I said, okay, I'm going to figure out how to make this, you know, just something that and I had to get over myself really, because, you know, at the end of the day, I think what comes from the heart reaches the heart and really that film at its heart is about the heart. And so all of these other abstract ideas, um, 
you know, fall to the wayside a bit. And, and it's just about something that, that moves people and feels honest. And sometimes that is a chord progression that everyone has heard a million times and just doing it in a way that's authentic. So for me, like kind of sitting at the piano and, and doing a, a, you know, a rubato performance that's not to click and just feeling my way through it. So that piece actually is kind of like what I thought was a complete theme. And then the second part is what my hands were kind of doing as Sean was on the Zoom. And he just loved that so much that it kind of became, and I didn't know what to do with it because it was like, well, this is two themes. It's like, okay, it's like an A theme and a B theme. And then we kind of had to figure out, well, I had to figure out how to intelligently make it make sense in the film, which I think it loosely does, but it emotionally works. And that's the most important thing. So that cue was drawn upon heavily for, for a cue near the end of the film. But that suite, the thing that we made the video to, which is the first track of the soundtrack, was actually just my suite that I created. Um, it doesn't show up in the film like that. Uh, I think they played in the end credits, actually. But uh, that was the piece in the mock-up version that got sent to Ryan and it got sent to Netflix. And... And the response was was really great. So then once we found that, we were off to the races. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you. End of a long day.